Hello, my name is Julia Streets and welcome to Diversity Podcast, talking about equity, inclusion and diversity in financial services. On the podcast, we seek to shine a light on positive progress, call out areas requiring further focus and offer lots of ideas to help drive change. And before we get started today, I just want to take a moment to thank our friends at City AM. They have given Diversity Podcast a new home at Impact AM, their pages dedicated to ESG, impact investment, DEI, and more. And we really appreciate that they publish and promote both our episodes and our supporting blog series so their readers can stay right on top of the very latest diversity, equity, and inclusion debate. So thank you to City AM. Now, I've been really looking forward to this episode because today I'm joined by two guests, Joseph Williams and Bakola Adisa. Allow me to introduce them to you. Joseph Williams is passionate about social education, democracy, and the power of digital in elevating both. As a campaigner, he has been fighting for more democratic systems for almost two decades. As a professional, he has spent his career creating digital interventions that reinvent experience for the user. And the organisation he is building, called Clue, is a meeting of these two worlds. They're on a mission to make the working world work for everyone. And that's all about improving accuracy, experience and the inclusion of job applications for all. So Joseph, I can't wait to get into this. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Julia. Really excited to be here. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Now you're joined by a wonderful guest. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Bakola Adisa. She is a senior governance, risk and controls expert, and she has had leadership roles in global organisations. Think Barclays, HSBC, RBS, JP Morgan and Deloitte. Now, she is also the founder and the CEO of Career Masterclass, which is a career development platform dedicated to enabling the progression of black and ethnically diverse professionals in the workplace. I am so looking forward to getting into this. Vakoda, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. Great to be here, Julia. Thank you for having me. So I am so intrigued and I'm going to start the same question I ask all our guests because you know people come with these incredible day jobs and side jobs. So Joseph, let me come to you. Tell me, what are you particularly focused on right now? What's new? Being a founder and, and growing Clue really is all encompassing. But in order for us to truly deliver on our mission of making the working world work for everyone, we are currently working on two campaigns to drive greater social change. Um, one is called Access to Funding. Uh, so access number two funding, uh, which in partnership with Disability Rights UK and the Disability Policy Centre um, is focusing on collecting data for the first time on the palpable barriers to investment faced by disabled founders um, when trying to grow their businesses. So this is so closely linked to the wider disabled community economic participation as disabled people are significantly more likely to work in businesses that are disabled owned. And another research-based campaign that we're also looking at at the moment, super excited about uh, working with Parliament, the Social Mobility Commission, um, and Not Going to Uni, which are a a fantastic job board for um, school leavers, um, is looking on more sustainable routes to social mobility uh, for the most underutilised talent in society, including refugees and displaced people, former offenders, uh, disabled and neurodiverse people, and over 50s. 
the reason we're focusing on this campaign and bringing together so many people um, around it is, is justifying new methodologies around social mobility is directly linked to sustaining the talent pipelines and moving away from this charity rich rhetoric that does surround corporate DNI. And it's wonderful to hear you talk not only with such passion, but the fact that you're looking at it from different perspectives, one being the entrepreneurial economic potential, one being about the ability to, to extend talent pools and bring people in, but the, the, the other is also how to sustain career journeys. Fantastic work. Oh, I can't wait to, to, to get into that so much more. And Bakula, can I ask you the same question? You know, I mean, not only with a busy day job, but with the masterclass as well. Tell us what you're focused on. It's been a busy time because actually um, two years ago, I transitioned out of a day job. So I left my uh, my role, my senior role, and I focused um, heavily full-time on Green Career Masterclass. And the reason why I did that was because it was becoming really, really important and it was becoming really crucial that Career Masterclass had a role to play in what is happening in society, especially as it pertains to Black and ethnically diverse professionals. So the ethnicity piece has always been really, really important to me just from my own lived experience and from being active, very active in the Black community. Um, we all know what the stats say around the progression and outcomes for people of color in the workplace. And that's something that has always bothered me. So for a long time, as I had progressed and, as and I've worked in financial services at very senior roles, it had always niggled at me that, I was often the only black person in the room. I was often the only black woman, um, senior woman at the, at the top of the table. And I was often the most senior person, the most senior black person in any organization. And so I, I started career masterclass as a way of helping the community to lift the community up to say, there needs to be more of us around these tables, irrespective of the barriers, the systemic barriers that face us. And so um, the work that we're doing gained a lot of, started gaining a lot of momentum. So in 2020, I stepped out of my corporate role and I started to scale and build the business. So where we are now is from, you know, no employee whatsoever in 2020. We're now an organization with about 20 people strong. We work with some of the world's leading organizations. We work with um, organizations in FinTech, in financial services, in tech, um, in FMCG. And what we do is quite simple because at the heart of what we do is career development and progression for people uh, from a black and ethnically diverse background in the workplace. We believe in the democratization of career progression and career growth, because my own experience of uh, working in some of these organizations shows that it's just the same type of people, identical people that get through, that get promoted, that get to lead teams and that get to lead projects. So what we are focused on right now is helping organizations unblock the talent pipeline. Because what we say to them is that recruitment is great, but recruitment is not the silver bullet that we think it is. Whereas for a lot of organizations, there's something called the frozen middle piece, which is where people from black and ethnically diverse background progress to a certain point and they, they, they hit the concrete ceiling, not even a glass ceiling, it's a concrete ceiling. And then they start to pull there and they don't go any further. So what we do is we help organizations unblock that talent pipeline by developing and investing in that talent while not just looking at recruitment alone as a silver bullet because there's just not enough people to go around the example i always like to give is if you're looking for a senior black woman you know to be a head of compliance right now in any sort of bank there's less than 10 of us that are ready now so that can't be the solution the solution is in helping to understand break down systemic barriers that exist within organizations and help that talent to actually progress. And so that's what we're working on right now. We've recently launched an amazing career development platform that helps employees with their, with their career moments, just so that 
for people that don't have access, access to sponsors, to mentors, to the right people, it doesn't matter. You can come to Career Masterclass. Your organization can invest in Career Masterclass and we can help those employees through their career moments, thereby accelerating their growth. So that's what I'm really focused on doing right now. So let's talk about some of the inequalities that exist in the job market. And Joseph, I'd really like to come to you on this, which is, you know, you've both got stories and you've got data we've heard there from Bacoda about, you know, the realities of not seeing representation at the top of the business thinking about how do we sustain career pathways. I'd love to get your thoughts on what underrepresented groups and ethnic minorities and what some perhaps some of their experiences have been. And you mentioned in your opening remarks about some communities, such as refugees, such as immigrants. Perhaps you could share some thoughts on that. Absolutely. Um, so our lane, as, as you mentioned, Julia, is really around supporting vulnerable and overlooked talent into work. Um, we use the term underutilized uh, a lot because talent exists everywhere, but opportunity doesn't. Um, we see time and time again with the organizations we work with, with the charities, universities that we partner with, um, that despite big slogans around inclusion and lots of public facing activity there is often very little infrastructure to truly support vulnerable marginalized um subsects of, of society so you know we've seen this with uh, ukraine and the refugees welcome here um campaign that went around but what we actually meant in the corporate world was you know we welcome first wave right white Christian English speaking uh, refugees, but the second someone from Afghanistan or Syria comes into the process, you're not welcome here. We see it also with the current drive to hire autistic talent um, by inviting them to apply for roles on sites that aren't even in the remotest way neuroinclusive or you know adopt accessible design. Um, and then they go on to continue asking if you are disabled, not how can I make this process better for you? Um, it, it's, it's really no secret that there is a perception bias that is rife within the corporate sectors um, and that is really closely linked to class and status what this boils down to is we're happy for you to work with us because you've gone to a good school um, you know we're happy for you to work with us because you interned at a FTSE 20 company last summer um, regardless of where your start was in life you have that those status marks are still so fundamentally important because we spend so much time in the corporate bubble talking about the skills gap and the unsustainable talent pipelines but then implement these insurmountable barriers to entry at that first point and we just go to say where did you go to school how long have you worked where did you study and this inadvertently disconnects about 75 percent of the labor market from opportunity so we spend so long talking about the importance of bringing your whole self to work, but then instantly devalue talent um, and potential because someone has not excelled academically or, you know, has had a previous conviction, a conviction or the like. Ultimately, we know through our data that, you know, disabled and neurodiverse people retain up to 80 percent longer. Um, nearly half of refugees that come to the UK hold professional or educational qualifications. Until we start having honest dialogue as to why we place barriers to participation in the way of these skilled, valuable, talented people, um, we will continue excluding just vast communities um, whose talents are directly matching the necessary hiring demands of our biggest companies. We recognise, and, and it's wonderful to hear both of you talk about this, about the need to appeal to that talent and how, therefore, we engage with that talent when it comes in. But there's another piece to this, which is about culture. 
at the heart of concern about culture comes the question of microaggressions. And I wonder if we could talk about that a little mm. bit. Uh, because I'd love to come to you, first of all, you know, when we, first of all, recognizing that it exists and also advice about how to tackle it. This is one of the things I do love to talk about because, you know, I say to people, we even have a very sort of like nice middle-class sounding name for it, microaggression, like microdosing, you know. The impact on the person is not micro. We might call it microaggression. The person experiencing that aggression does not experience it as a micro impact. It's a real impact. And, you know, for people listening who don't really understand this, microaggression are those acts that people just met out to you um, in day-to-day to represented people that are not quite overt bias and racism, but they are things that devalue you as a human, devalue your experience on a daily basis. And when you add them, add up all the different incidents of microaggression, it actually has a debilitating impact on people, whether it's their mental health, is their confidence, or is even the way they, they move through life and experience Um, the workplace. And microaggression in the workplace is a real thing. I mean, I'm just going to talk a little bit about my own experience um, because being a Black woman in the city of London, working in financial services has been anything but easy. I'm originally from Nigeria. And when I came here, I came here as a, you know, with a law degree, I educated, I had a professional qualification. So I was very well, you know, very well educated. And I came here and I remember someone saying to me in um, one organization I worked at, she was like, oh, you, you speak very good English. And I said, yes, because in Nigeria, in, in English, in, everyone speaks English. Like English is the lingua franca. She was like, oh, but you know, she, she just kept going on, but your English is so good. And I said, yes, because we were colonized by you people. So like, we were forced to learn English. Everyone speaks re- really good English. And it's things like that. It's things like, oh, can I touch your hair? Or how does your hair, how does your hair work? Does he, does, how does it go so, so big? And it's little, little things like that that just serves to remind you that you're just not quite part of the majority. You know, it goes from the the most innocuous remarks, like, you know, your hair is, you know, your hair is different to things like, where are you really from? You know, where are you from? I'm like, I'm from St. Albans. No, where are you really from? That means you're not really from here. Where are you really, really from? You know, do do, do you have cars? Do you have, you know, do do you, do you have the internet, you know, back where you come from? Those little things, because people, that are not from that background, don't have to spend time, energy, effort, understanding these questions, interpreting these questions and trying to fit into a mold. So all of these things do take away from you and they add to the lack of psychological safety that a lot of us experience at work as people of color. Because I can be in a meeting room and someone else can be in a meeting room that's from the UK, right? That's from the UK, white Caucasian male. We are both in the meeting room. We are both doing our jobs. He's doing this job free from thinking about am I, how do I put across my point so that I don't come across as an angry black woman. He can just be himself. Whereas I also need to deliver, but I also need to think about self-policing myself so I don't fit into the terror stereotype of an angry black woman. I also have to think about, wow, some people may not understand my accents. So I need to make my accents a little bit you know, British. I need to speak a lot more clearly. I need to stop using hand gestures, which is something that's very cultural. To, to black women, I need to also, you know, make sure that I don't maintain too much of a direct eye contact. Culturally, black women are direct. I need to ensure that I tone police. So all of these scenarios are playing in my head. And that is really taking away from the psychological safety and the effort and, and energy I could be putting into just considering, just concerning myself with doing a good job. 
that is the real impact of microaggression in the workplace. It leads to a lack of psychological safety. It leads to a culture where people don't feel like they belong in the same way. And it leads to a constant everyday devaluation process. And then it also puts you in this catch-22 situation because the, the culture has made you not confident. And then guess what? At year end, you are told, you tend to be a bit quiet in meetings, but there's a reason for that. So you are caught in this loop that you just feel like you can win. And this is very real. You multiply this across the experiences of so many Black and ethnically diverse, or even underrepresented people, or anyone that is different every day. And that is where, why we are where we are. And it is so complex. Okay, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on that. More and more people, enlightened leaders, recognize that culture plays a really important part. So now we had this conversation about we want to create call-out cultures, but that can't be easy to do. If you are on the receiving end of these microaggressions you described, I would love to hear from, from both of you. Perhaps, Joseph, I could come to you first of all, is, you know, what advice would you give listeners to call out some of these behaviours? Firstly, Bacola, thank you for sharing your story so honestly and authentically. I mean, it, it is reliving trauma when you go through these things, so I really appreciate you taking time to speak so eloquently and beautifully about that. From a perspective of allyship, um, particularly as so much of the microaggression that we see and experience at the moment is anchored around race. Um, I think one of the biggest pieces of advice that I have learned is that despite someone who sees these things, taking action off the bat without asking for permission and kind of create and seeing if the person that you see being experiencing microaggressions actually wants or needs or is, you know, this is the right time to offer them help and raise a situation for them can actually just intensify trauma as opposed to mitigate it. So um, we we um, have a, a guide that we've created internally um, because in a lot of the conversations we have with organizations in, in vetting them and kind of getting them ready to work with us, we hear and see a lot of microaggressions. Oh, well, why do we need to do that? Oh, well, you know, that's not a priority for us at the moment. Oh, well, you know, maybe we can look at that the, those people like later down the line, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we use a 4D, um, uh, a 4D mechanism. So discern, disarm, defy, decide, um, all with the underpinning caveat of have I asked this the person that I see experiencing a microaggression, do they need my help? Do they want my help? Is this the right time? or should we revisit this later? So discern is around um, determining how much of an investment you want to make in that situation. What is your relationship and your proximity to this person? Are you doing this for you or are you doing this for them? Um, disarm is if you choose to confront, um, be prepared to um, basically uh, be in the firing line if you are an easily offended, if you are, if you have um, your own challenges around your own experiences of microaggressions, maybe this isn't the space for you to get involved with, and maybe flagging to someone else is actually the right course of action. Um, uh, defy is anchored around uh, if you are choosing to engage, um, using questioning as opposed to attacking the person and kind of verbally say, "You've done something wrong." Um, if we start there, we just create a bigger barrier around like war and woke um, and we perpetuate and play into that rhetoric. So, you know, what did you mean by that? 
Um, did you want to cause offence? Do you realise how you caused offence? Is a much easier way to start a dialogue as opposed to instantly going on the attack, and then and then ultimately decide um, decide how much you want to invest in the situation in correcting this microaggression. Is it something that you are you doing it to inform, or are you doing it to um, basically have done something? Um, some people are beyond help. And this is why I say at the heart of all DNI, if we don't have accountability, um, we are just telling people um, to change their behaviours whilst not acknowledging that past the age of seven, it's impossible to really reshape these instinctive behaviours that manifest in, in racism and discrimination in general. Um, so that point of decision is really anchored around, you know, am I am, am I doing this for the, um, for the right reason? Is this something that I actually have the power and autonomy to be able to correct myself. Joseph, I'm really pleased that you do kind of uh, put not only put some sort of structure on there, which I hope the listeners will find really useful, but I did very deliberately, and I, I am very mindful, by the way, I went to the white guy to, to, to with suggestions about how to address that. But just for complete clarity, the reason why I did that was actually very specifically because of experiences around disability and experiences around working with minority groups as well. So I would love to hear your thoughts now, Bakuna, having heard kind of Joseph's remarks there about a structure, a, a model, if you like, uh, and also what advice would you give the listeners from your lived experience that you'd recommend? Thank you, Joseph. I, I love the structure and I think that's, that's amazing. Um, call out culture is something I am uncomfortable with. Because I don't think as a society, we're at that maturity level just yet. I mean, we're still at the level where we are still trying to tell people that treating people differently based on skin color in 2022 is a bad thing to do. Like it's not acceptable. That's where we are. That is where we are. We've not, it's, it's, we've not reached that inflection point, that evolution. You know, we've not, we've not matured in this, in this, on this agenda. Now, since George Floyd died, there's been a there's been a massive um, uptick in the education and the awareness of, of this, and also the discussion. I feel as a society, as a people, and especially in industries, and the way the power structure and the dynamic is set up in this industry, there's it is still a very very risky thing to do, um, to call out someone, especially if that person is in a senior position that's done something. Because we all know that the workplace works on power dynamics. We all know that the workplace works on allegiances and these things shift. I mean, we are st- we're in a place where the CEO of a bank in not so recent, you know, in not so recent, you know, sort of memory was hunting down a whistleblower that whistleblew. And the, it took the FCA getting involved for them for actually for them to say actually you know this is not the, this is not the right thing to do and this was not even around race this was just conduct generally but the ceo of a bank actually deployed the resources of the bank to hunt down a whistleblower by passing all the structures in terms of when you whistleblow when you submit something your your confidentiality and anonymity is guaranteed is protected but a, a ceo tried to circumvent that that is the that that is the landscape in which we are operating and so if you imagine that someone senior or someone maybe not so senior, but who is connected to senior people, who is connected to the power structure, say something that is untoward, say something that's, you know, or act in a way that could amount to micro- microaggression or covert racism or unconscious bias, 
who is going to call out that person? And how do you call out that person? And who is ready for the consequences? Because I think it would be naive of us to, to think that they're really, that the workplace does not work like that. And I think genuinely for the person, for the, for the Black and ethnically diverse people who are on the bottom end of that power dynamic, who's, for whom that power dynamic is not in their favor, they will just think, you know what, it's safer for me to just put my head down, ignore it, as I've ignored thousands of things before, before it, and just get it, do my job, go home and heal and carry that trauma. Now, does that mean that there's nothing people can do? There are things people can do. I think it starts with, if we say there's a zero tolerance policy, we need to mean it. I've been in so many disciplinary cases where there are people trying to explain away because racism makes you uncomfortable. You think you start because you think to yourself, but Joseph is a good guy because you see yourself mirrored in Joseph. Joseph is maybe you and Joseph have the same background. You've gone to the same schools. So you see yourself in Joseph. So you don't want to believe that Joseph has done this. So I've seen people explain it away. Maybe he didn't mean it. Maybe you misinterpreted it. So inflicting more harm on the person who has experienced that thing. And so that's why a lot of people will just think, I'm just not going to bother to report this. I'm not going to go the long, the long year because it's almost like what happens also in domestic or in rape cases, almost like the onus is on you to prove that harm has been done to you while nursing that trauma. That is what happens. I've been in so many disciplinary cases where people have twisted themselves in a knot, trying to explain what was clearly to that person an injury, a grievous comment that was made to them. And I always say to them, it doesn't matter what that person meant. Let us think about it from the impact. It's always about the impact on the person that receives it. We can't look at just the letter of the law. We need to look at the spirit behind what was said. So I think we can start by, if we say zero zero tolerance policy, then it is really zero tolerance. It doesn't matter if you can be explained away. It doesn't matter if there is context. If the person that's received that comment or that act feels like this has been, this is microaggression and actually the impact on me is anything but micro, then we need to stand by that. I think unconscious bias training has its place, but I also think it's a get out clause because a lot of bias actually is not unconscious. A lot of bias is very conscious because if we think about it, this is 2022, these are intelligent people brought in to do very great jobs. And these are people that, that know what they're they are doing. A lot of times it's actually not unconscious bias. And the fact that it's unconscious doesn't make it right. So again, we need to take an outcome approach to looking at the impact that it has on people. And I also think lastly, um, allies, and I love the points that Joseph made around allies, because to the extent that there is a power imbalance in the dynamic, it is not on black people or the disabled person or the gay person or the woman or whoever the underrepresented person is to call it out because the person is suffering from microaggression fatigue. So to ask them to again to be calling out stuff is putting another, is yes, another thing that they have to do as part in, in addition to their day job. And this is where powerful senior allies come into play. So if you see it, if you, if you, if you experience it or if someone reports it to you, you need to take on that fight. You need to help people, you know, to, to say it's not okay. Because to the extent that the power balance is not in the favor of the underrepresented people, they wouldn't be able to do anything consequential about it. And so it's all about consequence management, but it's about who manages and who makes it out, who manages that consequence, just because of the power dynamic and the, and the imbalance. 
It's been so important to to dedicate time and space to this topic because it does come up a lot. And in the the easy rhetoric around culture, call out cultures, you know, kind of microaggressions, you know, we, we assume they're small things, as you say, they're not at all. And uh, thank you both so much for your thoughts and also for your advice to the audience. Just fantastic. And I think this is a great moment, actually, just to pause and to bring in Cynthia Akinsanya, who has some research to support today's discussion. The 2021 Broadstone article, Microaggressions and the impact they can have on individuals in the workplace offers some practical tips if you are ever called out on a microaggression. Don't get defensive. Microaggressions are often unconscious or unintentional, so by flagging this to you, you may consider your choice of words or behaviour more carefully in the future. Do ask questions. If you're not sure why your action is being highlighted, politely ask for an explanation. The act of calling you out would be likely to have been uncomfortable for that person and you can acknowledge that. Don't be afraid of getting it wrong. No one gets it right all of the time and by learning to recognise microaggressions and being able to have conversations about them, we can all do better. And thank you, Cynthia, for all the research. And let's just take a moment to remind everybody how you can find Diverse City Podcast. So links to the research can be found on our website diversecitypodcast.com and remember it's diversity with a c not with an s diversity that's where you can find episodes sign up for early notifications of future recordings and also you can sign up for our newsletter it's called de and i that caught our eye that's where we share news stories and updates so you can stay on top of what's current of course you can follow us on social media Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Diversity Podcast is available on Bright's Talk and all good podcast channels. We are currently a five-star rated podcast, and we would love it if you would rate us because it all helps not only to promote the show, but extend our reach of these incredibly important discussions. So I'm really intrigued. Um, we talked in the opening remarks there, Joseph, about also your intersection with technology as well. So I wonder if I could come to you with a question on that, actually. Um, I'm really concerned that certain candidates are overlooked, particularly in the world of um, technology, because there are also biases in AI and the tech themselves as well. I mean, I'd love to hear what advice you'd give listeners to think about how they could immediately recognise and perhaps address some of that. The first point is look at who's building the technology that you're using. Look at the teams that have built the software. Um, ultimately, homogenous cultures create platforms that address their needs. Um, that is what we do as technologists. We, we look at the problem from our perspective, often, particularly at early stage, concept stage, as most AI and ML platforms are, um, you are starting from the problem from the place that you see it. Um, and if that is not uh, viewed from uh, a, a, a truly diverse perspective, Inherently, from the very get-go, um, those those platforms will be flawed. Um, look at the algorithms themselves. Um, how diverse are the data sets that they are learning from and have been um, matured using, uh, particularly in video AI? Uh, I've seen an increase, a, a scarily um, large increase in video AI technology in interviews and screening, uh, where people with glasses are marked down, people with accents are marked down. Um, when we start looking at neuroinclusivity, video interviewing is one of the biggest barriers to comfort and kind of setting someone up for success. So all of that is, 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 is super important. Um, if you're looking at behavior-based um, interviews, understand that AI is fundamentally flawed in behavioral assessment because assessment is an academic process. 
um, and shouldn't be replicated for behaviors because behaviors are contextual um, and show up in very different ways in very different environments. Um, also look at the way you are utilizing AI and machine learning in your process. Um, are you using it to replace human interaction or enhance human interaction? This is people-led in uh, processes. Technology should not be doing the job, it should be enhancing the job. Um, don't hide from data. Um, our, our kind of modus operandi is uh, clarity, um, clarity, accountability, transparency, trust. Um, and so our data processes follow this, capture inclusively and report honestly. Um, and more on, on, on data in the final point here is you will never understand the biases that exist in your process until you create that, that, those feedback loops um, to speak with the people that are actually affected by them. I feel this could be an entire episode in its own right. And I love the fact that I've actually slightly abused you being here to ask you these questions. It's fantastic. <laughs> and, and so concise and so precise. So thank you, Joseph. Really, really appreciate it. I wonder if I could pick up on another, because what we tend to do is we go through these episodes, certain things bubble up as I sort of describe them. And, and because at the beginning of what I introduced you and you were talking about what, what's important to you right now, you talked about your career journey where you didn't see many role models or peers at the top of the tree uh, where, where you sat at the highest seats in, in, in the organizations. It's undeniable to be able to say role models matter. But I'm really intrigued to know what advice do you give to encourage role models and also allies, which has come out in conversation, to step forward and also pay it forward? Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. Um, so yeah, you're right, um, especially when it comes to the issue of ethnicity and race. We do not have enough role models. And it's important because people ask me all the time, you know, but why is that important? It's important because you cannot become what you cannot see. You know, it doesn't matter if an organization says, you know, we are we are committed to equality, fairness, we do not discriminate, everybody's a meritocracy, blah, blah, blah. If we look at the top of the organization, everybody looks the same, and we're excluding women, we're excluding people of color. You are not married, it's not a meritocratic, meritocratic organization. You are not committed to equality, you're not committed to fairness. And actually, that's probably an organization where discrimination is rife because why is a certain part, um, why is a certain cohort not progressing? So that is why it's really important that we have role models. Because I remember when I when, when I was coming through and I would look up at the, you know, at the top of organizations and I'll be like, what this organization is telling me is it doesn't matter how hard I work, people like me are just not the kind of people they are looking for in leadership positions. Now, nobody has stood up at any town hall to say that. No HR leader has said that's our policy, but there is what you say, and then there's the actual code that runs through your organization. And the actual code that runs through your organization is what your employees hear on a day-to-day -day basis. So it doesn't matter if a CEO stands on a global town hall and say, we've just signed um, the race and equality uh, will become part of race and equality task force. It doesn't matter if they say we've just rolled out initiatives or we've paid this organization or we're doing this. All of those things do not matter. If I look at that stage, I look at the website and I look at the people that make up your executive committee or your non-executive committee, and none of them look like me, what you're saying to me, Mr. CEO, is that people like me do not matter. We're just there to be the soldier and to keep plugging away. But when it gets to the people that really matter in terms of strategy, in terms of having senior roles, there are not people like me. And by the way, um, you know, the fact that I'm a black woman does not mean I want to be your head of DNI. Thank you very much. We can do more things than being heads of DNI. You get what I mean? It is really, really important that we start putting people, that we start looking at talent and we start actually being, you know, becoming brave. And I hate that I'm using that word brave, but we become brave and say this person, yes, may not be 100 percent, but you know what? 
we hire on potential and the rest we make up for truth training and support. And the reason that white allies, how white allies can play into this or the power of allyship is that sponsorship piece. We know, I've worked, in, I've worked in financial services and in the industry long enough to know that the cream does not always rest to the top. The people that rest to the top are the people that are the most sponsored, most connected, and the most liked. And this is, why, this is how the allies can start to pay their parts. You as a white person, with all the power structure and the dynamic, and we, you have the power to make hiring, firing decisions, or who to make visible, who not to make visible, you need to start looking at how you share that power. You need to look at who are the people that routinely um, in, in calibration sessions, when the redundancy list comes out, who are the people that are routinely getting the short end of the stick? I can tell you without even any data, just anecdotal evidence says it is the people that are different. They are the ones that will be the first on the redundancy list. They are the ones that are not getting the right rating and they're the ones that in the when you force the curve, the performance curve that we all say do not exist, when you force the curve, they are the bottom 0.5%. So that is the power of white of allyship in looking at people and saying, I'm going to use my power to sponsor you. And that is how we start to move the dial and we start to move the conversation forward. As we navigate these really challenging times ahead, you know, economically, geopolitically, commercially, uh, why it's so important that DEI remains top of the agenda or high on the corporate board agenda, because there is a risk it may well drop down. Um, Joseph, can I come to you first? Talent is evenly distributed, opportunity is not. So sustaining talent pipelines, boosting retention, plugging skills gaps will only ever happen when we get serious about actually reevaluating what it takes to do a job well and who is capable of doing it. Uh, the world is full of amazing and really, really talented people who are really desperate to contribute. Um, so if we really get serious and want to get serious inclusion, moving to looking at people based on what they can do, not what they have done previously, will underpin successful EDI and has to be our starting place. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Joseph. Really appreciate your thoughts on that. And last but not least, uh, because I'm really keen to hear your thoughts on why it absolutely must remain high on the agenda. It has to, because this is the way you win. This is the way you win in the long run. This is the way you win in a sustainable way. Because if we continue to routinely exclude 50% of the population, a huge quarter of the population from contributing and making a difference in the workplace, then we all as a society we would lose. But for us to win economically, geopolitically, and for, for us to have thriving companies that are sustainable for the future, all talents, all voices have to be at the table. And that's the way we win. That's the way we come out of this. What a wonderful way to end the show. I have to say, I've really enjoyed the discussion today. We've been very thoughtful. We've been very provocative. We've also been very considered in terms of some of the dynamics that are difficult as much as uh, hearing your stories about your own career journeys and also where you're focused in terms of your organizations in really empowering and driving change. Joseph Williams, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Julia. And thank you so much, Bacola. Uh, the work you do is fantastic. Well, likewise, you almost took the words out of my mouth. Actually. Thank you for joining us and for all your insights. Thank you so much for having me. And just if you know, I'm a huge fan. Thank you so much. It's been great. Well, to everybody who's dialed in today to join us, I hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as I have. I've been Julia Streets. Thank you for listening to Diversity Podcast. And we look forward to bringing you a new episode very soon. Thanks for listening. This episode of Diversity Podcast was produced by Roshan Roberts on behalf of Julia Streets Productions. You can find out more about the guests from this week's show on our website. That's www.diversitypodcast.com. That's diversity with a C and not an S. 
Whilst you are there, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all our latest updates. All our episodes are available in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app. If you enjoy Diversity Podcast, remember to share on social media and give us a rating or review. And finally, our Twitter handle is at DiversityPod. Thanks for listening.